And my environmental philosophy is, no, 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 human impact is generally a good thing. It generally makes the earth a better place for us and we can do it intelligently. So we make the world a place that where we can have a lot of food, clothing, shelter, medical care, and clean air and clean water and safety from climate and you know beautiful nature. And so I'm a very big fan of intelligently impacting the planet. And that's what led me to fossil fuels is I think actually fossil fuels, if you look carefully at both their pros and cons, are a tremendous net benefit to making the earth a better place to live. So that's sort of how I came to it. Oil and gas makes modern life possible. The energy the world requires today and tomorrow will come from decisions made in the oil field today. Oil and gas will remain the leading source of fuel to power affordable energy that is sustainable for the billions of people that depend on the success of the industry. The oil field is a group of people, companies, technologies, and institutions working towards providing the world with safe, clean, storable, and transportable power. The Oilfield 360 podcast is a 360-degree deep dive into the leaders of the industry who will provide listeners with a first-hand account of what it takes to build, maintain, and lead the energy business into the future. The Oilfield 360 podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Lockton Global Energy and Marine, uncommonly independent. Lockton is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. Lockton's global energy expertise is centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, and downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Visit Lockton.com for more information. Upright Digital. Upright Digital specializes in partnering with your business to maximize marketing efficiencies. We have a deep understanding of people, their needs, motivations, behaviors, as well as the technologies that enable brands in many industries to utilize what is available in a changing digital landscape. Find us online at uprightdigital.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Oilfield 360 podcast. This is David DeRode. One of your co-hosts, I'm joined by my co-host extraordinaire, Jim Wickland. We've got a special guest with us today. We're en route to the tall city, a.k.a. Midland, Texas, with a really esteemed guest. Happy to have him with us today, Alex Epstein. Thanks for having me. This is my first plane podcast. It's very fitting to be celebrating fossil fuels and using a lot of fossil fuels to because it was the only way for me to get from Jackson, Mississippi, where I was committed to speak, to advocate more fossil fuels. So, you know, you have people who use fossil fuels to advocate the abolition of fossil fuels. I'm using fossil fuels to advocate more freedom to use fossil fuels. So I think finally someone is using a private jet for a pro-fossil fuel purpose. Well, God bless you. You're not a hypocrite. You're not a hypocrite. That's good. So, Jim, how are you feeling this morning? It's a beautiful day. Glad to be here, David. And I'm really looking forward to asking Alex a couple of questions. I've heard him speak. Now I want to hear what he really thinks. Well, fortunately or unfortunately, I always say the same thing wherever I am. So I think we'll co- maybe hopefully we'll cover some new stuff, but my opinion doesn't change whether I'm talking behind the scenes with a microphone or not. So fortunately, I'm going to put myself in a position where I just, my whole life, my career is consistent with saying exactly what I want. Well, that's usually a good philosophy to have, and we'll be talking about philosophy. So on that note, Alex, for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with you, 
obviously I've bought several of your books and we'll be buying more and I've sent them out to a lot of friends, clients, et cetera. But tell us a little bit about your past and how you got into the position you're in advocating on energy as a whole, but particularly in fossil fuels. Well, people who are in hydrocarbons won't make this mistake, but a lot of people think that, oh, this guy who's advocating that we should actually use more fossil fuels in the next few decades, like he must have been a product of the industry. And, you know, the industry must have found him and groomed him or something like that. And that's why he's saying it. And I wish the industry did that. But my background is so I didn't even know anyone in the industry when I came up with my views, let alone had any financial relationship. In fact, I believe we're going to this fossil fueled concert. The first person in the industry I ever talked to at length is going to be there. And she emailed me. So it's very exciting. It's a woman from Floor that I met in 2008. She certainly wasn't paying me any money, though. So anyway, I didn't know anyone from the industry. I grew up in a liberal place, Chevy Chase, Maryland, and my family is not at all involved in energy, nor, by the way, is my family involved with Jeffrey Epstein, in case anyone is interested in that. So kind of I'm the last guy you would expect to be a champion of fossil fuels, but the decision I made in life that sort of inevitably led me to become a champion is that I became obsessed with philosophy as a teenager, and when I was 20... I decided I was going to become a practical philosopher for a living. And most people would think, oh, that's an oxymoron, practical philosopher. A philosopher is just somebody who asks useless questions like, how do you know you're not in the matrix or something like this? But philosophy is really, it's the study of the fundamental ideas that guide all our thinking and all our action. And so philosophy studies are thinking methods. So how we actually go about making important decisions and coming to conclusions what assumptions we have about the world, how the world works, and then what our values are, what we think is good and what we think is bad. And really early on, I realized that thinking about thinking methods and assumptions and values is very practical because depending on a person's thinking methods, assumptions and values, that's going to affect whether he has a good life or a bad life, if he's a positive influence or negative influence, and it's going to affect cultures. So, you know, I think that in general, the thinking methods, assumptions and values of this country have been very special. And that's part of why we're such a special country. For example, we value individual rights, which is something that's been very special throughout history. Or if you look at the oil and gas industry, we're such a special country because we value subsurface property rights. So I think a philosophy is practical. The other thing is I have a very pro-human environmental philosophy. So your environmental philosophy is your philosophy of the relationship between human beings and the rest of nature. And the dominant environmental philosophy today says that human beings are environmentally bad. So our impact, it's wrong for us to impact nature and nature punishes us. So Nate will run out of resources, we'll get too polluted, the climate will kill us. I'm a very big fan of intelligently impacting the planet. And that's what led me to fossil fuels is I think actually fossil fuels, if you look carefully at both their pros and cons, are a tremendous net benefit to making the earth a better place to live. So that's sort of how I came to it and where I, part of where I diverge from others. And the pragmatism of your approach is appreciated, but there are a whole lot of people who don't understand or don't take the time to understand, who have no interest in getting educated. You've been doing a great job of educating a lot of our political leaders in the U.S. How going forward do we convince the every man that what you're saying is true, other than waiting until you're proven right, at which point it may very well be too late? Well, fortunately or unfortunately, I think that people don't learn as much from disasters as you would want them to. So let's say right now we have a global energy crisis, I would say. And in particular, we've seen 
one, the vulnerability of Europe to Russia, and two, we've seen a lot of impoverishment in the poorest parts of the world, in part because they're getting outcompeted for artificially scarce supplies of hydrocarbons from Europe. I mean, Europe is outcompeting them, so you have places like Bangladesh. How can Pakistan. they? Yeah, how can they compete with Europe for fuel supplies? And so you have more blackouts and shortages, etc. And yet, so from my perspective, this is a catastrophe that should already wake people up right now, if you look at the events. But it's not waking a lot of people up. Why? Well, in large part, the people who caused it, one, have an incentive to deny it. Correct. And they certainly have an incentive to deny their own responsibility for it. And they have their own agenda, including making the world's biggest problem seem like the fact that it's warmed one degree Celsius in the past 170 years. So to listen to the media, you'd think, oh, the problem is that it's a degree warmer than it was over a century ago. Versus, no, the problem is people don't have the energy they need to have machines to be productive and prosperous, and so they're suffering. So that might seem pessimistic, but it's actually that, like, any time, whether there's an apparent catastrophe or not, is a good time for changing minds. And I think what you really need to do for the everyman is you need to connect it to their lives. So you need to show them, hey, look, if you have lower cost, more reliable energy, that makes everyone more productive and prosperous. That makes the world a better place, including cleaner water. Like that requires a lot of energy. Being safe from climate requires a lot of energy. You need heating and cooling and, you know, drought relief from irrigation and crop transport. And like you need to make clear energy is so important to your life. And then anti-energy policies are so harmful. And I actually think it's pretty easy to make that case to the general public. It's more that it's hard to find the right vehicles to reach them. Well, you want to get good at making the case, which I've worked on for a long time. And you want to find the right vehicles. And of course, traditional media have not been very good at that. No. But now we have social media and then there's alternative media. So I found a lot of ways to do it. The other thing I found is I have, for example, a website, energytalkingpoints.com, where what I try to do is I try to create the best arguments that everyone can use. So I create this website and I want everyone to just copy me. So if you go to energytalkingpoints.com, you can look up any issue and you can see a really effective way to communicate. it. And now we're seeing politicians use it. Business people use it. Regular citizens use it. So I'm trying to find the most effective ways to communicate, share them with everyone for free, and then encourage people to use unconventional tools, not rely on, oh, I need to write a letter to the New York Times. No, they're not going to print your letter, but Twitter will print your letter. Upright Digital. Upright Digital specializes in partnering with your business to maximize marketing efficiencies. We have a deep understanding of people their needs, motivations, behaviors, as well as the technologies that enable brands in many industries to utilize what is available in a changing digital landscape. Find us online at uprightdigital.com. You know, your methodology of getting your message out is frankly as impressive as your message. Well, thank you. So I've had a real, like, I think one thing that has been an advantage for me is I have controversial ideas, but I really want my ideas to be uncontroversial. And even the way I think about it is I don't like, if you look at how I think about things, I talk about, hey, let's carefully look at the benefits and the side effects of everything. It's very like common sense. It's not common practice, but it's common sense. So I think I have a very calm and not a crazy way of looking at things. And unfortunately the world is crazy on this issue. They're not carefully weighing the benefits and the side effects. They're ignoring the benefits of fossil fuels. They're dramatically exaggerating the negative side effects. But it's an advantage that I actually have a, like a common sense 
non-controversial way of thinking. And so I'm very interested in how to reach people. Some people with controversial ideas, they just want to be controversial. Like they live to be controversial. I'm okay being controversial, but I would rather be popular. I just would rather be right than be popular. You know, eventually you'll achieve both. You're right now and the popular is coming. You know, more of it comes over time, but it's like, it doesn't make any sense to be motivated by popularity. That's a really painful motivation to live by. That has never been anything I was associated with. <laughs> so that's not a problem. I have been to more third world countries than most people can count. And I have seen poverty at its worst. And I remember years ago when the U.S. government would ship trucks and tractors and different things to Africa to help with their agricultural production, not realizing they didn't have roads or to run them on or shops to repair them on. And it just seems that 14% of the U.S. population has traveled outside of North America. That's wow. all. Only 28% of the people have a passport, and half of those have only been to Mexico and Canada. So I've only got 14% of the people in this country who have set foot out of North America to see the rest of the world, and going and having a hamburger at the Hilton in London, the Hilton in Rome, right. and the Hilton in Paris is not exactly seeing the world. And the world that you're talking about is the part that really very few people actually see. I mean, I think it's great insofar as you have those experiences to share them. You have, I mean, at least people should read about them. And it's really tragic, you know, the media don't talk about them. But it's really interesting. I've been more and more working with people in Africa and India, poorer parts of the world in spreading this message. And they're incredibly receptive because they know that the earth is not a good place unless you're industrialized, unless you use a lot of energy. And they really hate the fact that people are telling them, hey, don't use fossil fuels, even though that's how we became prosperous. And what I'm very proud to have played a role in helping some of these guys. So there's a, an interesting guy I interviewed on my podcast a little while back. It's called Power Hour. I only do it occasionally. But his name is Jusper Machogu from Kenya. And he's now becoming a big advocate. And he's getting a lot of attention on Twitter. And he shows pictures all the time from the farm he works on. And it really reaches people. So I'm really excited to get the people who experience it firsthand to tell their story because we need to hear that story. Yeah. So is it really about the environment or is it about power and control? Because I feel like there are a lot of useful idiots running around not fully understanding what they're arguing against or arguing for. But it just seems to me that the common sense is no longer common. What are your thoughts about that? So when you talk about, is it really about the environment? I think it depends what you mean by the environment. So if people listen to me, one thing they'll notice is I never ever use the term the environment. And I talk about it in my book. And the reason, and this is a philosophical thing, is I like to be very precise about concepts. When people talk about the environment, it blends two different, very different things. So sometimes when they talk about the environment, they mean the human environment. So they mean, do we have clean air? and clean water, and enough food, and we can enjoy nature. And I think that's what most people think about when they think of the environment. But actually, usually the way it's used most in practice is it means unimpacted nature. So it means non-human nature with no impact by us. So when people say protect the environment, it usually means human beings don't do anything. And I think the environmental movement is unfortunately today led by people who are against us having any impact on anything, and that really goes along with power. Because if you think human impact is wrong and the earth should just 
have as little of us as possible, then of course you want power because if humans are free, they'll impact our environment, right? If I leave people free in the United States, we homestead the environment, right? I should just said the environment, right? But we homestead our environment because we want to make it better. Naturally, the natural environment is not a good place unimpacted. So if you're against human impact, if you're for the environment in the sense of the non-human environment, then you're going to need power to restrict everyone's behavior. And conversely, if you want power, what better movement is there than the movement that says human impact is evil? Imagine you hated bears and wanted to control all bears. You would join the anti-bear impact movement, right? You would join the movement that said bear impact is evil because you get to control and kill all the bears. So the modern environmental movement leads to logically to power and people who want power love the idea. And nowhere is this more true than with CO2. I think part of the appeal of CO2 for people is that everything emits it. So people who want a lot of power love the idea of controlling something that everyone emits. It was kind of like with COVID, although I think COVID is much more dangerous than CO2. Some people were afraid of COVID legitimately, you know, as was I, but some people loved the idea that everyone might be guilty of it because then they got to control everyone. And that's what some people like about CO2. Everybody is, quote, guilty of it. So then if you're a power luster, you get it. And then, of course, if you can claim that it's destroying the world and it's costing a lot of money, then you can claim the right to a lot of money to fix it. And so there's a huge money motivation. And then once you get a lot of power and you can move a lot of money, then everyone interested in money will try to adjust themselves to you. And this is part of why does Al Gore have an astonishing amount of money? Well, he was kind of an anti-human guy who influenced the government, and now there's all this money to be made for him. Exactly. <laughs> you always follow the money. $14 trillion is one of the low estimates out there that it's going to cost to electrify the world. And the fact that we can't actually achieve it has no bearing, but the money will be spent. And like you say, it's the power of controlling those purse strings. That's the power. The intent is not to save the planet. I have an issue with when people put a dollar price on destroying the economy, because if you talk about electrifying, I mean, electrifying the world at some point, sure. I mean, 200 years, who knows, right? But if you're talking about electrifying the world in 27 years and powering it all with non-carbon electricity, that means destroying the global economy. I see no evidence to the contrary. So even if you say it's $100 trillion, it doesn't do justice to it because what happens is there are two things. One is when you destroy the economy to that extent, you kill a lot of people. It doesn't make any sense to put a dollar price on that. Like, what was the cost of the Holocaust? How many trillions of dollars? You can't measure things in money in a meaningful way when you're talking about killing people. But the other thing is money gets its value from productive ability. Our productive ability is derived from how cost effective our energy is. So if we make energy impossible to afford, the dollars will have no value. It's just a different form of inflating the currency. Instead of just printing more money, you have far fewer goods backing up the money. So yeah, it's like, I mean, how much in Zimbabwe dollars does anything, like I have a hundred trillion dollars Zimbabwe. So do I. Yeah. yeah. So it's just like, I think it's good to criticize these things, but the real thing is they're proposing to destroy our current energy systems with a total crackpot fantasy and that would just destroy the world economy. So I'm all for alternatives, but the way to prove alternatives is to actually invest in them and develop them on the free market and actually have them out compete fossil fuels. And that should be pretty easy to do if your ideas are so good. 
because most of the world has very little energy. So if you have such a good energy solution, scale it to the rest of the world. We have 6 billion people using an amount of energy we would consider unacceptable. So if all these guys have such good schemes, compete on the free market, don't ban what works in a world that has far too little energy and then promise that your spreadsheet is going to solve everything. So what is your take on the fact that Jim and I were talking about this earlier on the way to get you, that the massive deployment of coal-fired power plants by the Chinese continues to occur not only in China, but other countries they're so-called helping. And it seems to me as if most people think that we are in a sectioned snow globe. Yes, great term. And, you know, when I talk to Jim, it seems at least once a year annually, we get the Saharan dust that comes over from the Saharan desert in North Africa, you know, the continent, not the country, as so many people think that it is. And it settles on our homes and our vehicles and all that in Houston for, you know, usually a week or two at a time. And it's amazing to me how the average person has a hard time believing that China cannot impact the global environment and be a big player in the so-called climate change when, in fact, the emissions that are created by the use of coal-fired power plants don't just stay in China. They literally are passed throughout our atmosphere in our giant snow globe that we live in. What did you call it? Section snow globe? Yeah, Section I like snow globe. I yeah. like it. So, yeah, I mean, I think this fact, the truth is pretty easy to explain to people. And it's one of the things I go back to a lot, particularly with people who are most concerned about CO2 emissions. Because you recognize, okay, whatever your level of concern is, you have to recognize it's a global phenomenon, right? So CO2 emissions are a global phenomenon. Oh, yeah. So you're showing a chart that shows China, you know, having the biggest CO2 emissions overall, not per person, but overall. And so when you're thinking about emissions, you have to recognize that the decision of whether to emit CO2 or not is going to be made by 8 billion people. And in general, poorer people who live in the real world are going to be very uninclined to compromise their standard of living to lower their CO2 emissions. And so the only, I believe, not only moral, but practical way to lower emissions long term globally is developing truly cost effective alternatives that the Chinese will choose voluntarily. Right now, what we're doing is we're just unilaterally making sacrifices. China has more coal in the process of being built for the future, each plant designed to last 40 years, than we have coal capacity in the United States. This is just new coal. So I think it's really important to point out it's a global issue. And I think the fact that the other side doesn't point this out or focus on this shows that they're not really concerned with the problem they say they are. They like the problem. They like having the problem as a means to having power over certain people. So it's like, oh, if you just follow my policies, everyone will follow suit. This is what Schwarzenegger would say in California. It's like, it makes no sense. If you sacrifice and make our standard of life worse, people aren't going to follow suit. Instead, they're going to produce our solar panels and wind turbines in China using coal. Well, I mean, it's just senseless, but it's unless you understand, well, the goal of particular people is they want their power. And then I think globally, you know, the movement, it's not, I mean, my contention is the movement is not really concerned with human life. It's really concerned with just the leaders really just hate, in a sense, they hate human life. They hate our impact on the planet. They think there should be fewer of us. They think of us like a virus or a cancer.
but they're not really scientifically thinking about how to eradicate us. It's like wherever they see us, they hate us. So you imagine somebody who just hates bugs because they just want to swat bugs wherever they see. So any chance they get in their local environment, which is the U.S., to swat us, they're like, let's stop this pipeline. Is that really going to reduce emissions? No, but they just hate it. They just want to see it destroyed. So it's not a scientific movement at all. And it's not a pro-human movement. It's like this very arbitrary anti-human movement, which is why we're doing these insane things that nobody could ever justify on any grounds. It's scientifically illegitimate. I right. Mean, being a geoscientist, to sit up there and address all favorable topics and none of the pro-ones is not the way reason discussions happen. And I just think that without reasons discussions, and I'm an optimist, it's going to be a challenge. Practicality always wins out in the end, just never as quickly as we'd like. Well, I think in a certain sense it wins out, but the issue with practicality is the definition of practical is in a sense a moral term, because what's practical depends on your values. So now for most people, I think they generally value what I call human flourishing. So human beings having good, like living to their potential, having long lives, healthy lives, opportunity-filled lives. So in that sense, I agree with you. I think most people have a conception of practicality that's that way. But I do think a lot of the leaders of the anti-fossil fuel movement, what they want to practice is a less impacted earth. Like that's yeah. their focus. The other thing that's a problem with practicality winning out is that causal relationships, what causes things in practice, are often non-obvious. So even the global energy crisis today, I think it's pretty obvious the root cause is artificially restricting the supply of hydrocarbons. But it's not obvious to people. It requires explanation. And when it's not obvious, then other people could come up with alternative explanations. Even if you take like, you know, the state of Afghanistan and when Afghanistan people were concerned about the farming, like their explanation of the farming problems in Afghanistan is climate change. It's like, how much sense does that make? Why don't we have farming problems in the United States? Because it's a global climate that's changing globally. It's obviously local policies, lack of energy. Like that's obviously the dominant factor, whatever climate is playing a role. But it's not obvious to people. It needs to be explained. So one of the burdens we have as people who study energy is we need to connect practical results but we need to make the abstract connection. And part of the art is how do you make it as clear as possible? That's a lot of what I try to do. And if people look at energytalkingpoints.com, I try to have really clear explanations for everything, how everything works. Like for solar and wind, I'll say, hey, look, solar and wind don't replace the costs of fossil fuels. They add to the costs because they can go to near zero at any given time. And people get that, oh yeah, you have to pay for the unreliable grid and the reliable grid. So I'm always trying to figure out how do you efficiently explain the cause and effect, because the cause and effect is unfortunately not always obvious. So Alex, you were just in the state of Mississippi, and you were talking to Mississippi State University students. Tell us about that experience. I have experiences like this where a bunch of people act toward me in a way that is very inappropriate and bad, and so I condemn the way they act, but honestly, I enjoy it because it shows that they have no argument against me. I like the art of countering people doing bad things. So we could talk about a recent thing that happened in Congress that a lot of people saw, but at Mississippi State, I was there, I was invited by the university, so it's a university-wide lecture, which I appreciated. And I come into the hall and they tell me, hey, a bunch of students are staging a walkout of you. Like they're gonna walk out of the room. 
all right. And then I see a pamphlet that it has a chant. It's something like, hey, hey, ho, ho, climate change is real or some empty slogan, which, of course, my, I'm always arguing we do impact climate, so it doesn't even counter me. But I decided, okay, what I'm going to do is I stood up at the beginning and I said, hey, guys, I hear a bunch of you want to walk out. It seems like you have some really strong opinions against me. So why don't we start out? Why don't you express those opinions? So just you have to keep it brief, but tell me what you think is objectionable about what I'm going to say, or if you have any questions that you don't think I can answer. These were like almost church mice. They had almost nothing to say, even though I knew they were about to boldly walk out. And then a few asked some questions, but not many had questions. And they were pretty weak. They were things like, is it really true you get paid a lot of money to speak? That was one of their arguments against me. I was like, well, unfortunately, I don't get paid as much as Al Gore. But yeah, people do pay me to speak. But that's not really an argument against me. I don't think they're taking it as an argument against Al Gore. I tried paying Al Gore $100,000 to debate me, which is a lot more than my speaking fee. He wouldn't do it. So he gets a lot more than that. Anyway, so it's really interesting. The other students, because most of the students weren't going to walk out, I think they saw from the beginning, hey, wait, these protesters don't really have much content to what they're saying. So I started giving my presentation, and I think it was quite effective. And then as I was explaining some point about how to think about climate and climate change, they just stood up and they said something like, I don't know, some like jingle, and I couldn't even remember because it was dumb. So I just sat down. I literally sat down on the stage and just waited for them to leave. And most of the people were really unimpressed. And I pointed out these protesters said like climate change is real, but I had already said that. So they weren't even listening to me. I just pointed out they just had a pre-prepared agenda and they didn't listen even though they stayed for 15 minutes. So I thought it was very effective. And then even a couple of the students stayed who were part of the movement and I answered all their questions and I was very polite. So for me, it's great, right? I love it when people try to antagonize me because I have nothing to hide and nothing to fear. And I told them, if any of you have a point that's correct, I will agree with you. If you can refute me, I'll agree with you. So I have no fear of somebody refuting me. But in practice, they had nothing to say. So I think it was really good that they did it, even though they wasted people's time, because the other students got to see how weak their argument was. And they got to see that I had strong answers to everything. That's interesting. You shot me the video of you asking those questions this morning, and I thought that was pretty interesting. Talk to us about your recent visit to Congress. That was kind of interesting as well. I was in London about three years ago at the Extinction Rebellion protests. And it was during an oil and money conference. And it was interesting because at the oil and money conference, all of the oil companies were promising to put at least 15% of their business in renewables and start cleaning themselves up. BP made the announcement they'd go to net zero by 2050. And the people outside protesting didn't listen or care or pay any attention to what was being said. It was just stop oil. That sounds about right. So. Yeah, it's notable when you have people who they're so uninterested in thought. This will go to my congressional experience where no matter what you say, they don't even register it. That's what happened in Mississippi State. I said all of these things and they just had the same narrative, even though I answered all the things they were saying. So, you know, again, the congressional thing is another example of very bad behavior, but I don't mind it at all. So but it's really bad. So I was invited to testify by the Oversight Committee about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And I had written quite a bit about why I disagreed with Biden depleting the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And I thought his reasons for it were very invalid, which people can check out. They look up SPR and energytalkingpoints.com, they can see my reasons. 
And I have to admit I was a little naive because when I was preparing for the event, believe it or not, I prepared to talk about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve on a hearing about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which I don't know why I did that. I thought of every argument they could make and I thought of having the best answers possible. And so I come in the room, you know, the chairman, Pat Fallon of the subcommittee, he gives a speech, you know, which I'm mostly in agreement with. And then Corey Bush, the ranking member on the subcommittee speaks. And I wasn't very familiar with her actually. I had heard she had some like anti-Semitic security guard or something like this, but I didn't usually pay attention to these personal things. I just care about the ideas. But then really early in her presentation, she starts off, she called me, I think a fossil fuel titan, which was interesting that I'm a titan of the industry, never having worked in the industry. But then she said one of these witnesses or titans, and then she started calling me a white supremacist. Or she said specifically, she said, Alex Epstein has espoused white supremacist views. I knew immediately where this came from because months before Fossil Future came out, the Washington Post had attempted a hit piece to portray me as a racist. And long story short, this was a failure because I saw they sent me the outline in advance and I made a huge video on Twitter that got very viral, got mentioned on Joe Rogan that totally refuted all their accusations and shamed them. They didn't run the piece for a week and then they stripped all mentions of racism and I believe white supremacism out of it. But some of the activist organizations they were in cahoots with said white supremacism. And so Corey Bush, mind you, on a hearing on the SPR, had two posters printed of quotes from me of things I said in college that were not white supremacist, they were individualist and pro-Western civilization. But as I explained in college and I explain now, to be pro-Western civilization has nothing to do with skin color. It is about believing that certain ideas are better than others and those ideas are universal regardless of time, place, or skin color. And Cori Bush is so unthinking. I don't think she read these. One of the signs she read had me saying it has nothing to do with skin color, yet she still called, she, she couldn't even pick the right quote to try to nail me with. And you know, for other people now, but keep in mind, I'm laughing at this, but it's very serious, right? I'm testifying in front of Congress. The ranking member has made the substance of her opening statement an attack on me for one of the worst things imaginable, being a racist, which is the opposite of what I've been and fought for my entire life and is one of the most damning accusations you can give somebody. And so most people in my position would probably be very uncomfortable. But I was just hoping that they would give me time to respond because I didn't want to waste my five minutes, but I was going to respond. Thankfully, Chairman Pat Fallon gave me a minute. He said, Mr. Epstein, you know, Mr. Epstein, you can have a minute to respond. And so I spent a minute and I was able to respond very effectively about how despicable this was, about how I'm an individualist and about how disgraceful it was that instead of addressing my arguments, which she could not refute, she did this. And then I posted it on Twitter. The post got 4.7 million views. I got on Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, Dan Bongino posted a clip of it. So it went viral. And what I told these people is, look, guys, like I am not going to be stopped. So you can attack me and it's going to backfire every time. Or you can not attack me and I'm still going to be a steamroller. So honestly, I shouldn't say this, but they're doing me a favor by attacking me because there's nothing they're going to expose that I won't address. So like my belief is if I were them, I would just shut the hell up. You used a trigger word, culture, which unfortunately in today's society is nothing but a racist term. And you did a great job of explaining, no, that's not right. But I thought it was amazing that that was the trigger word in today's society 
It's just the individual word of culture. Yeah, and culture, it's a really bad thing philosophically where culture gets equated with skin color. That's right. But culture is really the dominant ideas, usually in a geographic location, but are among a group of people at a given time. And it's very important to be in favor of cultures evolving and changing. I mean, imagine that my whoever my genetic ancestors were 5,000 years ago, imagine if they had been stuck in the life 5,000 years ago. My life would be terrible. I'm glad cultures have evolved. And Cori Bush had the goal in stupidity to say, she called African culture our culture. Like, first of all, there's no uniform African culture. Second of all, it's not her culture, she's an American. And like the premise of every culture should be, we wanna learn what we can from the other cultures to become as pro-human as possible. Unfortunately, it still remains true, it's improved. But in Africa, there's more negative cultural trends today than there are in other places, certainly in the US. And the number one that I focus on my whole career is lack of freedom. And the number one thing I've been advocating for is more freedom including more freedom to use energy and produce energy in Africa. And as many Africans said afterward and before, like, I'm the greatest ally of Africans because most Africans don't like a lot of the problems there. And they certainly don't want a Cori Bush to be in charge and to speak for them. Well, you're brave. It's good that you're so thick skinned. Um, consistency of message means you don't have to remember what you said. That's right. You always say the same thing. So that's always good. And so I thank you for being an advocate of the industry. But, you know, you make a point that most of what you do is just noting common sense and how the world works. And I understand if somebody's anti-energy or pro-energy or anti-anything, but common sense about the way the world works shouldn't be such a controversial issue these days. And I do think a lot of people, I mean, people respond really well to the thinking methods. And it's part of the reason why I invest so much in spreading the thinking methods and spreading my talking points because I see them work. So I'm always just bugging people, hey, just use them more. Like they're free. Use them all the time. And, you know, I have something coming out soon called Alex GPT, which is just people, some people can see it privately, but like that's a chat bot like chat GPT, but it's based on my work. And then you'll be able to ask it any energy question and I think get the best answers to it. I so believe in this thinking method and my research on the facts and my team that, yeah, I'm just doing everything I can to scale them. No, I think it's great. I plan on querying Alex GPT quite a bit. Alex, you're kind to do this podcast with us. One of the things we generally like to ask our guests before they leave is, you know, is there any advice you'd like to impart on any of our listeners or any advice that you would have given to Alex Epstein, you know, 10, 20 years ago that you might be willing to share with our listeners? I love this topic. So I would just tell listeners, if you're interested in my advice, I have a podcast with 98 episodes called The Human Flourishing Project, which is basically like my views on how individuals can have a better, happier life. So I have lots of stuff there. I actually think in a sense, I know more about that stuff than I know about energy. I'm going to write a book someday. Actually, I'm not going to tell the title because I don't want somebody to steal it. I haven't copyrighted it yet. But I'm going to write a book on productivity and how to enjoy work that I think will be useful and, yeah, and how not to be stressed about it. I think, man, I mean, you know, I'll say a couple of things. I mean, one is my favorite self-help book in the world 
And my favorite ethics book is actually the, it's a novel, The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. I don't know if either of you ever read that. Have you read it before? Oh, yeah. It's amazing. So it's, I think anyone who wants a good life and to enjoy their life should read it. So I think that's a really good book. Maybe I'll give people advice. I get this a lot. How do you keep your cool? Because this is something I think I'm good at. Like, how do you keep your cool when, you know, everyone is just attacking you all the time? Not that everyone is, but I do get these vicious attacks. And there are two secrets to it. And one is always be aware that there's a camera on you. And now often there is a camera on me, but there's always a camera on you in the sense of people are seeing it. And anytime you lose your cool, you are losing. Like it's a losing position to lose your cool because it means like so much of confidence is control. Like, I mean, this is true in like dating. It's true in everything. Like so much of confidence is being in control. I mean, in confidence in life is like, I'm in control of life. I can handle situations and losing your cool is losing control. So at the very least, just be aware that the optics of losing control are really bad. And I'm in front of a camera a lot and in front of a microphone a lot. So I just have trained myself, be aware. So even if I felt like losing my cool, I don't. The other thing, which is more philosophical, is you have to have a hard distinction in your mind between what reality is and what the content of people's minds is, right? So what is in Dave's head or Jim's head, it can be what's in reality, but there's no necessity. So for example, if both of you just ganged up on me and you say, you know what, Alex, like you are an idiot. You're a Santa Claus denier. Santa Claus is obviously real. He's obviously giving all these presents and you're an idiot. And then you got a bunch of four-year-olds to gang up on me, right? You got a hundred four-year-olds or a thousand. They're like, you're stupid. And they chanted me. How much is that going to bother me? It doesn't bother me at all because I know there's no connection between your views and reality. If somebody says like, you're a climate change denier. You're saying what you say because people paged it. If they say anything that's untrue, to me, that's like the Santa Claus thing. Now, if they say it to other people, I will get annoyed. If the Washington Post tries to portray me as a racist, I'll get annoyed and I'll refute it, but I won't lose my cool because I know it's false. So I think in people's minds, if you have a mental model of there's a difference between reality and what's in people's heads, it helps with a lot of stuff. It also helps with your own stuff. Because you know, even if you have a strong feeling about something, doesn't mean it's right. Even if it feels right, it's not right. Now your feelings can be, it can give you clues, but it can give you a clue, but it doesn't prove anything. So maybe those are the two things. Be aware of the camera, whether or not there's a camera, and then always be aware there's a hard distinction between what's in reality and what's in people's heads, and don't confuse the two. I think that's solid advice. And having re-engaged an executive coach several months ago, which I've done throughout my career. You know, that's one of the things we talk about. And it is easy to get frustrated and to set expectations that are unrealistic. So I think that's great advice you just gave. And particularly being mindful of the fact that you're always on camera and always on a microphone and that should really curb the way you think and also speak to people. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned an executive coach. The hard, I find the hardest context, actually, is dealing with team members. Like, because that's the thing where I have more of a tendency to get mad at things. And it's, 
Because that, you know, it's understandable because that's what you're trying to create as like your life's work. And, you know, that's an, that's an interesting thing. So I'm always interested in people's advice on that. But one thing I try to think about there is just the issue of expectations. And if I'm getting mad at somebody, did I have realistic expectations? Sometimes I did. Sometimes they really just did something that was out of character. But often it's, it was in character and it was just a mishire or you hired somebody with limited abilities or whatever. And you just have to, it's like anything else. You have to be objective. Like what are these person's actual strengths and weaknesses? If they're overall a really good fit, like fossil fuels, like if it's, if the positives outweigh the negatives and it's the best option, then great, embrace it. Sometimes it's just, oh, it's the wrong person. and We need a different person. But I found that was the area for me where I was most vulnerable to having unrealistic expectations and getting mad. So I find that often when I get mad, it's because I have unrealistic expectations of the other person. And I find that helpful because then I can direct the energy toward myself and say, wait a second, Alex, if you want something different, then you might have to change the people. You can't just expect the world from somebody that you didn't have a reason to expect it just because you wanted it. And of course, in hiring, it's very easy to be emotional. One thing I've gotten better at for energy talking points is figuring out hiring processes where I test their objective abilities. So for example, and if anyone wants to apply, you can apply. I did a podcast recently on becoming an energy freedom policy architect because we're trying to create a lot of good new energy policy. And my application was basically, I taught everyone how to create it and you just submit doing it, which is hard to do. So I just had people do it. And it's amazing how much you learn about people's abilities by having them do the exact job. If I had just interviewed them and had aspirational conversations, I'm sure five of them could, could, could have convinced me they could do a great job. They can't convince me of anything if they can't actually do the thing on paper. So I'm really interested in how do we have realistic expectations and then in employment, how do you have that at the front end by validating they have the ability to do exactly what you want versus hope? Anyway, I'm just, I rambled about that because that's a current obsession of mine is applying some of my better abilities, but fixing up some of my weaknesses and so fixing my hiring weaknesses. That's great. I'm the same boat. So, well, this has been great. I really appreciate you visiting with Jim and I on our way to Midland. And Jim, I appreciate you joining me on this trip. Alex mentioned his website, energytalkingpoints.com. I'd highly suggest you checking that out. You can also find us at oldfield360.com and uprightdigital.com. Please check out Alex and his latest book, Fossil Future. Yeah, and, and if you're a student, by the way, students and educators can get a copy for free at fossilfuture.com. If anyone wants to order it in bulk or anything else, if you want to have me as a speaker, fossilfuture.com is great. But particularly if you know students and educators, take advantage, fossilfuture.com. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Alex. And thank you, Jim. It's great to get to know you today. Locked in global energy and marine, uncommonly independent. Lockton is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. Lockton's global energy expertise is centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, and downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Visit lockedin.com for more information. Upright Digital. Upright Digital specializes in partnering with your business to maximize marketing efficiencies. We have a deep understanding of people, their needs, motivations, behaviors, as well as the technologies that enable brands in many industries to utilize what is available in a changing digital landscape. 
find us online at uprightdigital.com. <laughs>